Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see you. Eric was uh, talking about uh, us a little bit ago at the very beginning of the service, and he said a lot of love between us, a lot of love. I remember when I was getting uh, just used to texting uh, to the younger folks in the room, there was a time when you could not text. Um, but I remember getting used to that and feeling, you know, like I'm hip and I'm with it now. And there was a young guy here at our church at the time, and he was the one sort of getting me on to the texting thing. And I remember when, it, when we were texting, he texted back to me, LOL. And I thought it meant lots of love. Uh, and I thought, he's a pretty passionate guy, I guess. And so uh, I did not know it meant laugh out loud. And so I just, I said, LOL, back to you. Uh, lots of love back to you. But anyway, it is good to be here with you this morning. I appreciate you coming out and uh, giving, us, uh, giving us a listen. I want to tie in together Thanksgiving, uh, since we're in that, uh, close into that season, and communion, something that we do uh, every Sunday. We take Lord's Supper, communion, whatever you might uh, be uh, used to calling it as you were growing up. And what I hope to do this morning is put another layer on it. And so uh, because we have communion following the message, it's sort of like just an introduction. It's a long introduction to communion. And I hope that uh, every week uh, when you partake in communion, whether it's here or somewhere else, whether it's in a small group, a family get together, uh, that this little layer to communion will always now be on your mind. And so how do you put these together? When we remember the Lord, because he says, do this in remembrance of me. Is there a way to tie in other people around us with that? Sometimes I feel like communion is just between me and God. And I realize that in it, you know, when you're giving communion to 100 or 200 people in a room, it's not the same as maybe a half a dozen sitting around a table. So I, I understand that the way we do it, you know, is to accommodate basically a large uh, crowd of people. But sometimes I feel like we can almost be in a cubicle because it really doesn't matter about who's beside me or who's behind me or who's standing in front of me when I'm taking communion. It's simply between me and him. Well, I'd like to take the next couple of weeks uh, to try to change that perspective for you and to get us to think not only this way, but this way during a time of communion, which is a time of, uh, of thanksgiving. So here's my bottom line. I like to give the bottom line up front. When I'm being sold something, I want to know, you know, sometimes people will try to hold back what the price of something is. They want to tell you all the benefits. And, you know, if you've sat uh, across the table from somebody trying to sell you a car or a timeshare or something for me, if you would just give me the bottom line, then I can think about all the little details you're giving me. But if you hold the bottom line from me, that's what I'm thinking the whole time you're talking, right? So I want to give you the bottom line for next Sunday. So this is like, this is it. And if we could incorporate this little thing, thanksgiving to him should lead to greater care for them. Who's them? We'll talk about that. But what I want to tie in is our thanksgiving oftentimes is just between me and God. God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for the blessings. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my health. Thank you for all of these things. And it just goes between me and him. Beautiful, wonderful, no shade to cast upon that at all. To me, that's where it starts. 
But that's not where it should finish. That's not where it should end. And I want to share that with you over the next uh, couple of weeks. And so we're going to be in and around a story about uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, some 50, uh, 50 AD, about 20 some years after Jesus. Um, Paul writes to this church in Corinth, and, and if you can't see uh, the little word there of Corinth, that maybe you recognize the hill of Italy's boot uh, over there. And so it just sort of gives you an idea. Uh, this uh, place, Corinth, was, a, was an amazing, hustling, bustling kind of a place. A little bit of background about it. It's a Greek city. Uh, it's established hundreds of years before Jesus uh, comes on the scene totally destroyed by the Romans, and it lay desolate for over a hundred years. You say, now why is that? Because the emperors wouldn't allow it to be rebuilt. They wanted to make sure they could grow their empire enough to be able to take care of it and to handle it and to control it. Julius Caesar comes along and orders it to be settled or resettled in, a, in about 40-some years before Jesus comes on the scene. And so even though we're talking about 50 A.D., 90 to 100 years, for, a, for an ancient city, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's still, in, comparatively speaking to the other towns and other villages and other ports and other places, it is a real, sort of like a brand new city. It's fast growth. If you remember, Paul gets a job there as a tent maker in Corinth. He stays there a year and a half. He stays there second longest just to Ephesus. He stays there a good long time. And the reason that the, the, the tent industry was hustling and bustling was because the growth was faster than what they could build for. And so a lot of people were living in tents. You have a lot of travelers, a lot of, you had, you had a chance for some real big winners. You could, you could make it in Corinth because Again, all sort of a lot, a lot of roads lead to there. There's ports on both sides of the, uh, of the land. Uh, there was a, a, a free slaves would run here. They had three uh, temples uh, to Aphrodite, so a whole lot of prostitutes all over the place in the name of their gods. And so a, a lot of big winners and a, or a, lot, a, a few big winners and a whole lot of losers you could literally make a name for yourself. And this is important to know when we read the passage in just in a few moments. You could literally make a name for yourself in Corinth. Back in this time when there was few sort of like uh, government jo or, or, or government structures or government buildings and it wasn't like we're combining all of our funds together to build sort of infrastructure, you relied on rich people individuals and they would build public utilities and buildings and stuff for you but they wanted their name on it named engraved in stone and so in Corinth here was this place and there were still things that the city needed because of all of the fast growth and so there was a lot of people trying to make a lot of money and they really wanted a whole lot of recognition for it so you could literally make a name for yourself and get it stuck on the side of a utility or on the side of a building somewhere or a street or an area or uh, one of the little villages on the inside of it. And so uh, imagine this um, sort of uh, um, gold rush, California gold rush meets Vegas kind of a place, right? And just a lot of dreams, a lot of big potential, a whole lot of heartbreak, and a whole lot of, you know, just like the streets of uh, Hollywood, California, for every star you see, there's thousands in their wake who have their hearts and their dreams dashed and their hearts uh, broken. Uh, this was Corinth. 
And yet, this is where Paul goes. He establishes a church there. He stays there with these uh, Corinthians for a year and a half. He writes letters back and forth to them after he leaves, after he hears about how they're doing, then he would write a letter back and forth. And he writes this letter, we call it 1 Corinthians. There was actually other letters before, but it's the, it's 1 and 2 Corinthians are the ones that we have preserved for us by the Spirit of God uh, for us today. And so here in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthians and he shares a whole lot of stuff with them because he's getting reports about how they're doing. Now you gotta understand the city in which they're in. And there was something going on with communion. He even says, this isn't the Lord's Supper because they were saying, hey, this is the Lord's Supper. He's like, this is so wrong and you're so off. And it's a lot of verses, but I wanna share it with you because I want you to understand sort of the vibe of of, uh, this whole idea of what communion truly is. In the following instructions, he says, I do not commend you, I do not applaud you because when you come together, look at this. It's not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine? Can you imagine doing anything as a church to where we sit around a table and and say, you know what? I think the folks are worse off. After a service, we get together and we say, how helpful was that? You know what? I think the people were worse for coming. I mean, we'd scratch that program, right? If, if, If it's worse off, and this is what Paul says. He said, it's not for the better. It's for the worse when we gather together. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Genuine among you may be recognized. We're like, these were legitimate town leaders. These were legitimate movers and shakers. These were people who had their names on buildings in and around the town. And yet, the gospel appealed to them. And so they find themselves in the church. But what was happening was they were taking that outside culture into the church. They, were, they wanted to be recognized on the outside, which is perfectly fine to recognize a benefactor, to, to recognize somebody who had actually done a good deed. But they wanted to be recognized so much in the church that they were causing divisions among them. He said, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, I don't know what you think you're doing, but this ain't the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead or gets in front of the other one, their own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. One doesn't have anything to eat and the other one is a glutton. So here's what was happening. They were they were uh, prioritizing each other in and around the Lord's Supper. They were saying, because I'm somebody out there, then I should get to eat first. And if there's anything left over, then it just trickles down from there. Can you imagine? And so what, and they were bringing all kinds of food just for themselves to show off about how blessed they are. Because just uh, back then and just like today, a lot of times, we equate stuff with blessing. And so because we have a lot of stuff, then God must be blessing me. And, but, but then the opposite of that is if you don't have a lot of stuff, then maybe God's not blessing you and what's wrong with you. And if you got a lot of stuff going for you, then that's God's blessings. And if you don't have anything going for you, if you're not recognized, 
then what in the world's wrong with you? And it's these stigmas that that lower class, poor class lived with all their life. Because in this day and time, there was, there was this big thing about curses. And they attached everything to a curse or a lack of a curse. So if you had a physical ailment, well then the gods, depending upon what religion was in the area, but, but the gods are, or even, within, with even in the Hebrews, or God has cursed you. Sometimes you, had, you would keep uh, generational curses because your father or your mother or your grandfather had done something and the curses were passed down and you carried that curse with you. It could be a, it could be a poverty was considered a curse from God. I mean, so you had all this stuff swirling around out in the world and then yet when they got together, it was like they brought that culture uh, to the inside with them. He said, so when you come together, this is not the Lord's Supper. Some of you have so much, and you're eating it in front of people who don't have anything. Are you kidding me? Do you think this is the Lord's Supper? What do you have? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, if, because they were saying, well, we're hungry. What's it then like? Eat at home. <laughs> then eat at home and then come to church and be, uh, come to, to be of service. Look at this question. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Has a parent ever said that to you? I don't know what else to say. Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I have delivered to you. And then he reminds them about what communion was and is. For the Lord, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This isn't about you. This isn't about who you are. This is about who he is. And what he means for all of us. And I think this is one of the key passages in all the, in all the text here. In verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Look at this. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's an interesting word here. Proclaim. The word here proclaim doesn't mean just a shout out. But it, it has this uh, celebratory. It has this thing of celebration. And you think wait a minute, this sort of this uh, energetic, excited voice to, to announce something exciting, but it's the Lord's death. How would you pair those two words up? But remember, Paul said, I glory in the cross. What, what in the world does that mean? Understand something here. This, and we'll come back to this, but it, he's not just saying that we're proclaiming that the Lord died for us, but we're also proclaiming his death how he died. And to me, this is critical to understand. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Well, whatever that is, I don't want to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Then he says this, let a person then examine himself. That's, that's right. We ought to make sure that we're where we should be and what we should be and but listen, if you examine yourself, then you're going to declare that you're worthy to eat the supper? Are you kidding me? 
what they were, they were examining each other. They were saying, I should go before you. Oh, I know you. I got more money than you. I know you. I got my name on more places around here than you. Oh, I know you. And so they were, they were categorizing themselves. And Paul said, don't be judging each other. Judge yourself. And if you judge yourself to the point to, or if you're judging yourself based upon, well, yeah, I should get to go first or okay, I know he gets to go first, but then I should get to go second. Are you kidding me? He says this, to examine yourselves. Verse, uh, let a person examine himself that he said, eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Think about this, and we'll come back to it next week. Discerning the body. Discerning the body? Discerning the, the actual body of Jesus or discerning the body of Christ? He said, if you eat this, or if you drink in an unworthily manner to where you're not discerning the people around you, discerning the body that eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Look at this, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak. This is a physical thing and ill. This is physical stuff and have died because you're judging other people for their physical ailments. And you're saying because they're sick or because they have a physical ailment then they've got some sort of curse upon them, therefore you should get to go in front of them. And so Paul says, if you want to play that game, just understand God's not into that. And if you start judging other people and trying to, uh, and, and trying to uh, uh, grade or rate other people and put yourself in front of somebody else, then you know who's going to be your judge? The one who knows your heart and your mind and knows that you're not all of that. Doesn't matter how many names, how many plaques you have with your name on it around town. So he says, don't, you don't want to play that game because this is why when you start judging other people on outward things that you really don't know anything about, then God has to start judging you upon the heart that he does know. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we, if, if, if we judged ourselves, paid attention to ourselves, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, look at this, wait for each other. Wait on one another. Prefer the other person in front of you. It's not just between me and the Lord. He said, I want you to discern, have an awareness of the body around you. It's why it's called communion. We take it as a community. It's not just me and the Lord. And I realize we have, you know, sort of the, 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 the thing going against us is we take it in such large gatherings. And I realize if you took it in smaller gatherings, which you don't, you know, it's not like you can't do that. You're allowed to take communion anytime you want, you know, as a body of believers. You can get together and wait upon one another and, 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 and find out, hey, what are you going through? What can we pray about? How can I help you? How can I put you in front of myself? This is the whole idea. So when you come together, uh, you will not be judged. So in verse 26, it said this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you exclaim, you, you shout out the Lord's death until he comes. What was it about his death? Here's the thing that everyone, this was universally known, and this crossed the religions. 
Paul understood it and he makes reference to it in, in, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes this scripture, which I've got listed for you there in Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So when Jesus was hanging on a, a, the, the wooden cross, all of his disciples, every, everybody understood that, the, that this thing is over. No matter what he said, no matter what he said for the last three and a half years, no matter how many miracles he performed, he is cursed of God. Look at him hanging there on the tree. That was embedded deep in their DNA as a people. The Romans knew it, and they would use it against them because this is how you squelch, or this is how you, you, you push down any kind of insurrection. We're gonna, we're gonna crucify them, and then everybody will know that he is cursed of God. This was the heaviest stigma, if you will, that you could carry. Think about with me with Jesus. He grew up with a stigma, right? Everywhere he went, people whispered about him. That's Jesus. Whose boy is that? That's Joseph's, but you know that's really not his boy. Oh, really? What happened? Well, we, you know, they got some outlandish story, but, you know. And he grew up with that everywhere he went, this stigma. Everywhere he went, his entire life, he grows up with that, and he ends on the cross with the worst stigma of all, being crucified on a wooden plank, cursed of God <laughs> until three days later. Three days later. Three days later, his disciples, Peter's gone back to fishing. You know why? Because he, he, he fooled us all. We left our businesses and our homes for this. We thought he was the coming Messiah. We thought he was going to overthrow Rome. We thought that we were going to sit on his right hand and rule with him. And then all of a sudden, we, did you see what happened? They're on Calvary. Cursed of God, how could we have been so foolish? And they all leave. Until three days later. Three days later, there was, a, there was a gal who had been saved from a, she would, have, she would have never been allowed into the communion. She would have never had a place at the table. And she had no expectations of going to a grave that morning and seeing a resurrected Savior. She still wanted to do something for the man who had changed her life. Mary Magdalene set out to, to serve a dead Savior. I just wonder sometimes, if we knew that there was nothing more we could get out of this thing called Christianity, has he done enough for you already? For us to serve him for the rest of our lives, that's what Mary Magdalene was doing. She has to, then she meets Jesus, right? Goes to the apostles and tells the disciples that he's risen. But they, but they, they, they got this thing going on in their mind, but he was cursed. He was cursed. I know, but he's risen. Why would God raise him if God cursed him? And then Jesus shows up in their midst. And they have to feel his hands and his scars. And you know what, scar, you know what the definition of stigmas are? They're scars. Stigmata is what we get that from. And he had these physical stigmas. And it's how, how in the world did God, and so 
in this moment, everything changes. Everything changes. This is why the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who was a, who was a doctor in the law, who could stand up just after meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, he could stand up and say, the temple doesn't mean anything. The old law, there's a new, there's a new, there's a new covenant now. I mean, he just shelved it all. And the power was a resurrected Savior. But it wasn't just the fact that he resurrected. It was, the fact, it was how he died. He died with the worst stigma of all, and three days later, God raises him from the dead. And then they say, go out and share this story. Can you imagine? Can you imagine anybody who's carried stigmas and weights with them, ailments, and always been looked down upon people and always had folks whispering about you and always had people trying to ignore you and they didn't want to see you and they don't look at you in the face. You know why? Because you're just not, you're on the outside. And here's a gospel that says all of you on the outside and all of you that have been overlooked and all of you that have been ignored, we got a place for you at the table. And not only do we have a place for you at the table, we're going to put you first at the table. Are you kidding me? This is church. This is the body of Christ. When it comes together, Jesus reversed the curse. He removed the stigma and yours. I got to read this to you. Seven, over 700 years before that event takes place on, at Calvary, an Old Testament prophet in Isaiah writes this. Who has believed our report? And, and, and believed what report? Because when we would go and we would say, hey, I want to tell you about this, uh, about Jesus. Well, what, who was he? And you'd go down through his life. Well, then how did he die? Well, he was hung on a tree. Well, then, oh my goodness, he must have been cursed from God. You would think that, I understand that, but then three days later, God raised him from the dead. And so it, it has to be rewired in their head. I mean, then what? I don't understand, I don't understand. Well, maybe the curses that he bore on the tree wasn't his own. Maybe he had no curse of his own. Maybe he had no sin of his own. And because he had no sin of his own, there was nothing for him to pay for. Well, then why did he die? It's a really great question, friend. He died for your curse and my curse. Your stigmas and my stigmas died for your sin and for my sin. And, and the prophet Isaiah saw it prophetically 700, over 700 years before it takes place. And he says this, to him, uh, uh, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. For he grew up before like a young plant, like a, like a root out of dry ground. He comes from somewhere that you just wouldn't expect anything to spring up from. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. It was no beauty that we should desire of him. This was a stigma. I mean, we still rate people today on their looks and they're attractive or they're not. And sometimes we can get jealous of people because, well, they just got that attention because of how they looked or they get that attention because of their physical abilities. Jesus bore the curse. The scripture says he had no beauty or no majesty about him. He would have been overlooked in a crowd. He doesn't get picked first for the team. He was despised and rejected by men, by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men, men hid their faces like the homeless guy that we don't try to look at. We keep looking forward because we don't want to make eye contact 
If you've ever been in that position to be the one overlooked, I want to say Jesus understands that. He's had folks to hide their faces from him. All of his disciples walked away. John was standing there on on the day of Calvary. John had this love for him, but John had this heart for his to take care of his mama as well, but they all go away. And it says this, and we esteemed him, we valued him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. We counted him that he was smitten by God. God God is mad at you. What have you done? Ladies and gentlemen, there are people all over this area Wondering, God, why? Why am I going through this? Why has this happened? Why did, why did I, I catch a break? Why am I the one acquainted with grief? And it seems like other people are happy and other folks get breaks and other folks have the advantage. And Lord, I was either raised in this or this generational thing. I came from a family, Lord, of addicts. And everywhere they go, they get treated the same way. And if they don't get shoved aside, they at least get ignored. And in this, back in Corinth, they were coming to the church and it was the same thing, the same kind of treatment they were getting out there. Look at this, verse five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his stigmas, we are healed. Oh, friend, I, you got to know this and you have to share this. And this needs to be sort of like the storyboard of our life. That there was a man who you would have thought would have been cursed of God because he hung on a tree, but he took the worst curse of all. And that's in God's infinite wisdom. He could have been strangled or just beaten to death. He could have died when they were whipping him. A lot, of, a lot of criminals did. But we made sure that he gets to the cross. Why? Because the worst curse of all he's going to face. And this is why when Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians, he says, we exclaim almost in a celebratory like there's a party going on here. How can I foster healing for those who have less than, desi- less than a desirable past. How can I foster healing? He is healed. He is, his wounds uh, give our healing. How can I foster healing for, uh, for those uh, who were ridiculed for any physical disadvantages they had? They've suffered rejection and been ignored. They feel forgotten. And they have little self-worth who are more familiar with grief than they are with happiness. And we all have folks like this in our lives, around us, right here. And probably all of us can relate to at least one or some of these things. And a lot of times we just don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to help. Well, this Sunday is about what not to do. Next Sunday is about what to do. And how do we honor those folk 
who the world says need to be ignored and need to be pushed out and need to be marginalized. This week is about what not to do. We don't rate. Obviously, we don't rate. We don't do like dinner, dinner anyway during communion. It's a little piece of bread and it's a little cup of juice. Obviously, we don't sit around and try to decide who should take it first and second. We're way beyond that, thankfully. You know, in 2,000 years, we've grown somewhat. But what I'm saying is, could we... Um, could we at that moment, while I think of what he's done for me and the curse that he bore for me, as I remember him, could I take just a few moments and remember them? Is there anybody like at work who just can't seem to catch the break? Is there anybody that I, I don't know what to say to him most of the time, so I just, I just move on and I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with what they're going through. And, and so let there be some champions. I think that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand, some champions. Proclaiming what this, all of this means for all of us. If you're thankful for what God has done for you, then just don't let it stop with this. And then next week we'll talk about how can we make sure that it goes uh, this way. Would you bow your heads with me, please, uh, for just a moment? So we're going to have communion in just a little bit, and then uh, probably a couple of announcements, and then a final song. We'll take an offering in order. That's the way we're going to end up. But then after all of that, most people will be leaving. But during that time, while most folk are walking out, there'll be a couple of people standing up on the corners up here by what we call the stage. And they'll be over in the corners. There'll be a fella and a gal uh, standing up here. And if this morning you have a special burden upon your heart that you would like for somebody to pray with you about, we just don't want you to leave. And I know it's, you know, there's a lot of folks and we're, Folks are leaving, and some folks will be coming in for next service, and it's just real easy to get into an in-and-out kind of a thing. But if you're here this morning and you have a burden upon your heart that you're carrying with you, that's what those dear folk up here will be for. They'll pray for you. They'll share it if you want it shared. If you want it put on a prayer list, they'll make sure. If you want to, for them uh, to share it with us, they'll do that as well. They'll just keep it between them. But they're here for whatever it is that you brought in here with you, the burden, the heavy heart, that stigma that you have carried for a long, long time. Listen, dear friend, there is healing. There's healing for that. There's healing for that. And we want you to know it, not just know it. I want you to experience it. And yes, I want you to feel it. You know when you feel better, right? And I even want you to feel the difference that the healing hand of the Lord can make for you. Father, uh, bless, I pray, uh, this message and these dear people, Lord, uh, in whom you love, and help us, Lord, to, uh, to, to the best of our ability, Lord, to show forth the body of Christ in this area. In Christ's name, amen.